Our key scripture this morning comes from John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up there. We'll be in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It would be easy for us to read through the Sermon on the Mount as we have done and to be overwhelmed by everything that Jesus tells us to do and, in fact, by the way he tells us that we should do it. I know myself pretty well and a lot of the things that Jesus taught about in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are difficult for me to enact and practice in my own life. And after weeks and weeks of going through those things, and after weeks of weeks of Jesus putting such a heavy emphasis on our actions, I can very feel, very easily feel like when I look back at the teachings as we will this morning, like I don't really even know where to start. It's almost like you walk into a house where everything is wrong. It needs new paint, it needs new floors, there's a funny smell that you can't identify, and you look around yourself and it's like, so many things need to be done, where do I even begin? Jesus knows that these things are hard for us, and that is in part, I think, why he told us to do them, but the thing is that Jesus does not leave us on our own. Jesus believed so much in the power of the Holy Spirit that he actually told his disciples that he needed to get out of the way so that the Holy Spirit could come and do its work in us. And I know that it's a little bit hard to believe that there could be a better helper or a better aid than Jesus Christ himself. But God designed this to go this way and I think he tends to know what he's doing. And so God sent the Holy Spirit to us to live inside of us, to be our helper, to help us remember, to give us the strength we need to follow through. So many times in my life, I make decisions based on what I think I cannot do, on what I don't think is possible, on what I don't think I am capable of. Of. But if there is something that I hear from this passage this morning, it is this. I need to stop making decisions based on what I can't do. And I need to start making decisions based on what I believe God can do if I trust him enough. To actually allow him to show me something I've never seen. To learn something I never could have learned. To do something that I believed was impossible for me. 
Because in the end, whether you talk about grace or works, the story remains the same. It's not about what you do or how you do it. It's about what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Through his presence that lives in our lives. Amen? Well, hello, everyone. So nice for you to have come back after having snacks. Um, Today is actually our final sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. So I would like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That'll be our home base for us this morning. We have been talking for the last several weeks about the intersection between grace and our actions. Um, And as I've mentioned a few times uh, over the past, I guess, three weeks it's been, uh, this is kind of a challenging intersection for us. Um, I had some really great conversations after church last week, and in particular one person came up to me and said, uh, well, now I'm really worried about going to hell. And I said, you should be, because I know what you're like. (laughs) Oh, I didn't say that. I just thought it. Um, (laughs) I'm terrible, terrible. Um, But, and you know, she she said, I'm I'm, I'm worried about this now, because am I doing enough, or am I not doing enough, or how do I know if I'm doing enough, and how much emphasis do I put on the enough that I'm doing? And, you know, it's, it's so easy for us to fall into that place. You know, when we start reading verses like this. Um, And so often, I I think part of the reason is that so often we have used grace to alleviate all the tension we may feel within this situation, right? And so we know that our actions matter. No one one would probably come in here who's been to church for any amount of time and say, well, nothing that we do matters. But grace has been this thing, right, that has allowed us to say, well, it matters, but it doesn't matter too much, whatever too much is. Or, you know, grace covers all the ways that we fail in all these different things. And so when we read these words that Jesus has been saying over these past three weeks, all this anxiety is renewed in us. Oh no, you mean my actions really do matter? And then again, those same questions come up. Well, how much do they matter? And, and how hard do I need to to do these things and and how much do I need to go and all these different sort of things. And again, the problem for us, I think, is that we are a one way or the other kind of people. I've explained this to you over the past couple of weeks. Um, and, And here's, again, where we land on this. We either want to be completely saved by grace, where we can say our actions don't matter very much, whatever very much means, or we would go too far the other direction where our actions matter too much and we lose sight of our need for grace. And this is where Christians have bounced back and forth between these points of view forever. And maybe you can even hear some of the arguments that are coming up in your head based on whichever side you're going to attach yourself to. For example, if grace overcomes all of our failings, then the importance of our actions has to be minimal. I mean, after all, Jesus knows that we are going to sin, and that's why he died for us. If our actions are as important as Jesus says, then doesn't that take away from the grace that Jesus is giving? But if we put too much emphasis on grace, 
then why does it even matter what we do in the first place? Jesus clearly puts heavy emphasis on what we do, so shouldn't we be held accountable for what we do while we're here? Aren't we some degree called to prove that we belong to Jesus? After all, isn't that what he's talking about? Now, maybe you have never been involved in any of those kinds of conversations. Maybe you have never had any of those kinds of thoughts or questions come to your mind, but I have been in them several times with different people who come and they're looking for guidance, they're looking for help, but they want a definitive answer. Is it grace or is it what we do? And these are complicated questions, right? These are complicated questions. And we need to acknowledge that they're complicated questions because maybe even as you listen to them, maybe you had this sort of thought going through your head. Oh, that I've heard that. That sounds a little... Yeah, and I've heard that too, and that kind of sounds, oh, but that sounds right too. And, and yeah, oh yeah, that's a good point also. Right? And we end up almost agreeing with all of it. So what do we do with this? How we answer those questions. Some of the questions I just asked, and many others, uh, the answer to those questions really is important because depending on how we answer them, which way we lean, uh, it allows us to indulge in some of our more basic human tendencies. And um, I think that's really what these questions, when we raise them, are concerned with. What are we going to do with this information? What are we going to do with this tension? It has to be one way or the other. And here's the problems if we go one way or the other. So for, I'm talking way too fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I did have a little bit of coffee. Like, ah! Caffeine! Okay, here we go. How we answer these questions is important because depending on our answer, it may push us one way or the other. And so, for example, if we accept that we are sinners, that we are going to fail, which is something we should accept about ourselves, right? There is something that can happen which is we can tend to give ourselves a cushion because we know that grace covers for us. In other words, if I believe that I am going to fail, am I going to try as hard if I know I'm going to fail? Now, I have children. Many of you have met them. And when you are teaching your children something and they get to where it's really hard for them, and they don't feel like they can get it, what is the first thing they do? They quit, right? Because it's too hard. It's, that's, that is something that is natural inside of us, I think. When we run up against something where it either feels like it's too hard, or we feel like we've reached the limit of what we can do, or we feel like we just can't get over that next hill, our tendency is to want to give up. And what happens is, in our faith, when we reach that point, when we give ourselves that cushion, we enter into this realm of what I'll just call permissiveness. Let me give you an example. What I'm doing really isn't that bad compared to what I could be doing. So isn't it better that I'm doing this not-so-bad thing but not doing the really bad thing? And you know what? I don't really know why God would be concerned about this thing anyway. Like, it's so small. It's so little. Like, it doesn't really matter. 
Again, I'm not doing all these other things. And so it doesn't really matter if I do it or not. I mean, that's, that's the very short road that we take from trying to be transformed or change something about ourselves to what we see Jesus telling us to deciding that God doesn't really care about it at all. And we have done this over thousands of things. Whether we can, should, I should say, whether we should forgive someone or not. Whether we can use, you know, uh, how we treat other people. Uh, Maybe the things that we say or the way that we portray ourselves in different situations. I mean, we we have given ourselves this cushion. Because after all, I'm not going to succeed in this. And grace is going to cover for me when I get there. So here's what I think is true about us. You are welcome to disagree. But I think this is true. If we put in our minds that we have a cushion, we're going to use the cushion. Okay? So I'm not just going to leave the space between me and where I could be. I'm going to walk right up to the edge of where I could be. And then I'm going to try to stop here. But what happens when I try to stop here? My forward momentum tends to just carry me like right down the road of this place where I said I wasn't going to go. On the other hand, we have shown over and over and over and over again that we can so easily turn Christianity into a meritocracy where people are earning their place in the church, in the kingdom of heaven, where we sit back and decide who is in and who is out and what God thinks about some people based on all these different things. We are all too willing to keep score, to compare ourselves to other people, to minimize our own shortcomings while magnifying the shortcomings of others. And we've seen this throughout the throughout the the Sermon on the Mount, throughout the Bible story of Jesus, but he confronts people on this all the time. I've mentioned this to you a few times. Who does Jesus really get upset with in the Gospels? He gets upset with the religious people. He doesn't get upset with people who have made terrible life choices, obviously terrible life choices, He sits with them, he eats with them, he encourages them. They listen to him. It's the people that think they have this whole thing figured out and know how to get to God that he calls vipers. That that he uses harsh language with. So think about this statement for a second. Okay, just let it sink in a little bit. It occurs to me that as people of grace, who rely on grace for our salvation, we don't always know how to make decisions that put emphasis on our discipleship. And maybe that's because discipleship within church has too often been turned into the scorekeeping kind of game. So, How do we stay, this is the question that we come to, right? How do we stay serious about discipleship? 
really serious about it because Jesus is serious about it. There's no way to read this last section and think that Jesus is not serious about it. Okay? How do we stay serious about discipleship while still allowing ourselves and other people to be dependent upon grace? How do we go down the middle of those two things? So, as we've been talking about, if, turn over to um, Matthew chapter 7. When, when we look at the end of Matthew chapter 7, again, the words that Jesus uses here are really difficult and challenging. The narrow and wide gates, the true and false prophets, the true and false disciples, the wise and foolish builders. And let's just look again really quick there at the end of chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus hasn't left us any wiggle room here when we get to the end. He says either you're going to hear what I say and do it, or you're going to hear what I say and not do it. If you hear what I say and do it, you are like someone who builds their house on the rock. If you hear what I say and don't do it, you are like someone who builds their house on sand where the foundation can be washed right out from underneath it. He's made it very clear that we either are on the right path or the wrong path. That we have choices to make in terms of how we live our lives and we are going to be held accountable based on those choices. After all, you can tell what kind of tree it is based on the what? The fruit that it produces. So we need to acknowledge here for a second that even Jesus, as he's saying these words, is in a little bit of a weird place, right? Because there is, in fact, a little bit of a paradox that exists within this moment. Jesus is calling people to extreme behavior on behalf of God. And he's telling them, Either you do these things or you don't. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're following or you're not. But what does Jesus know? He's still going to go to the cross. He's still going to go and die for us. And so he's telling us to accomplish all these things, to do all these things, to become this kind of person. And yet, what does he still know about us? We need a Savior. We need a Savior. So here is perhaps the most important question that we can ask in trying to come to a conclusion in all of this. If all of these things are true, if Jesus is calling us to this kind of life and yet he knows we're going to fail, if we are called to accountability for our actions but we are also dependent on grace, then what is it that Jesus really wants from us? What is it that he wants? What does he expect the people who heard these words to do with them in that moment? And then what does he expect them to do with these words when he dies and is resurrected? And they understand that salvation has come. 
So we can very easily answer this question. What does Jesus expect of us by just echoing what Jesus has just said? Well, you do what Jesus tells you to do. This is what he expects for you to do what he tells you to do. But I want to suggest that this is not really the place where we want to start answering this question. While it might be the most simple and direct answer, I would like for us to start somewhere else. Now there's a passage that is almost in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just a little over halfway. Flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 19. Maybe this passage will help us a little bit understand where we have to start answering this question. Here's what it says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, for where thieves break in and steal, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Perhaps the key to understanding the intersection of grace and action does not start with what we do. Perhaps it starts with our hearts. And a fundamental question, who does your heart belong to? What is your treasure? What is the thing that is going to guide you into whatever it is that you are going to do? Now, we actually don't have to search the Bible to find evidence of this thinking in the teachings of Jesus. From Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, just think for a second. We've, most of us have probably heard this story, read this passage. But there's a certain word in there which tells us a little bit about what kind of answer this guy is looking for. Commandment, right? That word, it's an important word. And when I read that word, I hear him asking Jesus, what is the most important thing for me to do? What's the most important thing for me to do? I, I would be really interested to know what he thinks the answer to the question is. I'd be really interested to know that. I mean, maybe he totally agrees with Jesus. But I would be interested to know what he thinks the answer is. Verse 37, Jesus replies, so he asks, which commandment is the greatest? What should I do? And here's what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, here's something that's really interesting, which we need to bring back with us when we go back to the sermon. Okay? Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What should I do? And what is the answer? The answer is, you should love God and you should love other people. But then he makes this really important tie-in, which, which brings us to this place. The tie-in is this. 
Okay? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You are to first what? Love God and love other people and then understand this. Everything else you do is going to come from those two things. You loving God and you loving other people. Well, what is the most important thing? The most important thing is that you love God and you love other people. Because if you do those two things, then everything else is going to flow from that place. All the commandments, everything that God has said, come from those two things. And our ability to do those two things. Which leads me to this conclusion. Our actions are not things that we do. Our actions are a reflection of where our heart is. And if our heart is with God, then what we do will follow it. And if our heart is not with God, then what we do will follow whatever, wherever our heart is. So, let me find where I was. <laughs> Here we go. So now, I want us to go back to the Sermon on the Mount. So flip back over to Matthew chapter 5. Now again, the, the sermon is written in such a way that it would be difficult to get through it and then say, I don't know how to apply this to my life. I mean, after all, Jesus says, it's, you know, you have heard it was say, do not murder, but I tell you, do not be angry with your brother and do not, you know, I, you have heard it was said this. And so he gives us such specific instructions that it would be difficult for us to get through this and say, well, I don't know what to do with this, right? And then in the end, he tells us how much it matters. But I want to remind you of something, that this is not how Jesus starts this teaching. He doesn't start the teaching by telling us what to do and how to do it. Jesus started out this teaching with the Beatitudes, which I think at this point can best be described as people who have specific life attitudes or a state of heart when it comes to God and the world. God and the world. So Jesus starts us out by describing the kind of people, the kind of people who are going to receive the kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't tell us from the start what these people do or how they do it. Instead, he uses words that describe them. And because of who they are, what will they receive? All kinds of rewards that tie back to the kingdom of God. Then, in the middle of the sermon, Jesus goes on and he gives us the areas that we may need to change and things that we can bring our lives, ways that we can bring our lives into focus with the kind of people that Jesus has described we should be. And then he ends with the same premise, that there are people who are going to receive the kingdom and people who are not going to receive the kingdom. And the people that receive the kingdom are the ones who have done all these things, 
The people who do not receive the kingdoms are the, the kingdom are the ones who have not. So Jesus tells us from the start what kind of people we should be, and then he tells us how we become those kinds of people. What kind of people we should be first, and then how we become those kinds of people. Because here's something that I think is fascinating, okay? Jesus never intended for us to be solely identified by his grace, a people who were saved but do not do. That thought never occurred to him, that the saved would not follow through with their actions. Nor did he intend for us to be identified solely by what we do, a people who act but have no heart for others. That's not what he wanted either. Instead, he wants us to identify what kind of person we want to become and then take the necessary steps to realize that becoming. This is going to make a whole lot more sense if you're confused in just a few minutes. This perspective should change a lot of things for us. For example, how does it change the intersection of grace and actions if instead of saying, Jesus tells me I can't be angry and so I'm going to work on trying to not be angry, to I want to be a peacemaker? What's the difference between those two things? Well, in one, I'm just trying not to do something. But in the other, I'm trying to become something. And there is a world of difference between those two things. Isn't there? A world of difference between those two things. And that's where we fall into the trap in the middle. We read uh, chapters uh, 5 and 6 and seven, as prohibition against different things, against anger, against lust, against all of those different kinds of things. But when we see it this way, it leads us naturally to the meritocracy, to keeping score, to I'm doing this better and I'm doing that better and you know, I need to, and we forget about grace. But Jesus is not interested uh, so much at this moment in terms of just what you do or what you do not do. He's much more interested in why you were going to do what you're going to do. There were a lot of people walking around in the time of Jesus who could do so many things right religiously but did not have a heart that belonged to God. Do, do you get that? So many people that could do so many things right, but did not have a heart that belonged to God. And this is what Jesus is interested in, which I think is why the Beatitudes come first. He establishes a sense of character before he starts to talk about action. And this then becomes the lens through which we should read the Sermon on the Mount. So turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so here's what I've done this morning. I have drawn a correlation between the Beatitudes and some of the things that we see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want these notes, they will be available online later. Not right now, but later. Um, so I, I just want you to know that if you want to go back and look at these things. This is also not intended to be exhaustive. So you may make other connections too, and that's good. Okay? So here's an example. Oh, yes, yes, good. I understand how this works. The poor in spirit. Um, we're not going to get into what all the Beatitudes are again because we did cover that. And again, that is online as well. But the poor in spirit, one of the things we said about them is that they are totally dependent upon God and they know who they are. They know their faults, they know their failings, and they rely on God in all things. So what actions from the Sermon on the Mount can we tie to this? Well, here's one. They forgive other people because they have been forgiven. If you are poor in spirit, this is something that you're going to do. Uh, they are people of their word who do what they say they are going to do. They do not judge others because they know how much they have been forgiven. Now, where does all of that come from? This is the important question. This is the connection we need to make. Where do those actions come from? Why do they do those things? Because they are poor in spirit. And because they know who God is. And they know who they are. And so therefore, these are not actions that they're ticking off. This is an expression of who they are. This is an expression of who they are. Let's look at the next one. Those who mourn, which we talked about, those who mourn are those who are brokenhearted for the state of the world around them. Okay? They will give to the needy. Um, not so others will know, but out of the compassion that is in their hearts. Remember what Jesus talks about? Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, but you're just doing this. This is what these people would do. Why? Because their hearts are broken for the world and how it is. And when they see people who are living in ways that just don't, are, that, are, that are terrible, they want to do something about it. Uh, there we go. Number three, the meek. And this was an interesting one because we talked about how the meek are those, you know, they're not weak, but they are those who refuse to get into the power game here on earth. They're not going to grasp for something that's not theirs. They're not going to try to take something that doesn't belong to them. So these people, they will turn the other cheek. Not because they're weak, but because they're not going to get involved in this whole thing. That's not who they are. They will go the extra mile and give up more than is asked of them, even their own rights. And they will not demand what, they, what others might say even that they are owed and hold to the standards of this world. Next, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are desperate for the things of God. So they will acknowledge that God is the giver of all things and they will talk to him about it. They will have a relationship with God where they will go into their private space and just speak 
to him. They will pray and fast and seek out God in all aspects of their life. Next one. The merciful. There are some easy ones here. Okay? What will the merciful do? They will love their enemies and they will pray for them. They will not harbor anger uh, in their hearts against someone else and they will not judge people because God has shown such great mercy to them. The pure in heart. The pure in heart are those whose hearts and minds are fully seeking the will of God in all things. They desire for God to be in every part of their lives. So, the pure in heart, they will treat everyone with respect as children of God. Even the way that they look at them will change. Next, they will ask, seek, and knock with all of their hearts. They will not store up treasures on earth, but they will store up treasures in heaven. They will struggle against the anxiety of life because they are constantly challenging themselves to trust in God and they recognize that even in the most difficult moments that God is there for them. Peacemakers. They do not demand what it is that they think they deserve and they will pray for their enemies and love those who persecute them. Okay, that took me all of like 10 minutes. But here's something that really sticks out to me. These are the actions of these people who exist in this way. I know that's a weird way to say that, okay? But let me say it again. These are the actions of these people who exist in this way, in this place, whose hearts can be described in these ways. And when I look at that, it all makes so much more sense to me. Because after all, what is Jesus challenging us to do in this list of things that he gives to us? He's not challenging just to change our actions. He's challenging us to change who we are. Who we are. Because we've been giving ourselves excuses. I know that I feel this way, but at least I haven't done that. I know that I'm like this, but at least I haven't gone that far. And Jesus blows all of that out of the water because he says, these are the kinds of people you should be and these are the kinds of things that they do. After all, you will know a tree by its fruit, by what it produces. So let's state this as simply as possible. Our heart will dictate our actions. Jesus does not intend for us to work our way to to grace through what we do. He doesn't expect us or think that we can earn what he has to give. Instead, we are to love God with all our hearts, and as we love God and others, our actions will be dictated by those things. The book of Mark has, he he follows up with what Matthew says, but we're going to read his version here really quick. When Jesus was asked, again, the greatest command, this is what he said from Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. The most important one answer Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And again, It echoes what he said in Matthew, but we have to 
get our minds around this a little bit because love is a word that can be defined in a lot of different ways. Um, there used to be this uh, youth ministry program that was about sex and the guy had this famous thing that was so great, this great example, but he talked about the difference between loving green beans and loving someone else, right? But it's the same for us. It's the same word that we use. And so we can read something like that, and of course the question is, well, what does it mean then to love God or to love others? But here's what we see. Jesus answers the question for us. We are to love God with what? All our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength. What is left out? Nothing. We are to love God with every single part of us. After all, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So Paul, he builds on this in the book of Colossians, and and we looked at this earlier when we were talking to the kids. He was writing, and what's really interesting about this particular passage is Paul is writing to a bunch of different people who are in a bunch of different life situations. And this verse actually is written for slaves who are serving masters here on earth. But here's what he says, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ Jesus you are serving. Now, we've usually taken this verse and we've said, see, we should work hard in all areas, because that's really what Paul is telling us to do. But the actual subtext of this verse says something else. It makes a huge assumption that he expects his readers to make. And that is this. When you do anything for God, how are you going to do it? All the way. Anything. When you do anything for God, you're going to do it all the way. And so Jesus says, or Paul says here in Colossians, he says, you know what you should do? Make the rest of your life this way also. Because after all, when you're doing these things here, you are serving who? who? The Lord Jesus Christ. In everything you do. So do it all to the most that you can, 100%. Because in everything you are doing, you are serving Jesus. Not just the things that you have labeled Jesus things. So, as God would put it again, you are to serve him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and you are to serve him all the time. And that will spill over into the rest of your life. So what does this tell us? We're almost done, I promise. We are to understand that we are people who are dependent upon the grace of God. But we are also supposed to try as hard as we can to become the kind of people who serve God with everything that they are. Here's what I don't like about this conclusion, just to be totally straight with you. I don't like getting to the end of all this and how do, we, how do grace and actions intersect and the answer is try real hard. <laughs> right? I just don't... There's something so ugh, fuzzy about that. And yet, I think it is the answer. And, and I think it's the answer for this reason. 
we need to have a little bit of tension in our lives. We need to have tension between knowing Jesus covers our failings, but knowing that we are called to something better than whatever it is we may be doing or how we may be living. And Jesus challenges us in the Sermon on the Mount to lift how we live to such high standards. But he never intended for grace in our actions to nullify one another. Instead, Jesus intended that one will lead to the other. Your heart will lead to what you do. And here's the thing. How am I doing? How do I, what do I do with this tension? Well, you try really hard. And the thing about trying really hard is nobody knows how hard you're trying except you. I mean, we can sort of guess sometimes if someone's heart isn't in anything, isn't into something. But ultimately, what does it come down to? Jesus wants us to give our maximum to him. And we are the only ones who know if we're holding something back. If we're keeping our fingers so locked onto something that we don't want God to have. If we're allowing past hurts or angers or things to keep us from becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be. If we're, if we're allowing the difficulty of what God calls us to, to keep us from changing who we are. We are the only ones who know. And so we should feel tension. Because you know what I want in my life? I want everything I do to reflect God. I want that. Do I have it figured out? Heavens no. Am I going to fail in doing that? Yes. But I still want it. And I still want to become that thing. And the last thing is this. And I don't know if you thought about this or not. But all those actions we have in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. These are all relational things in the sense that they apply to how we treat other people. Let me ask you this question. Why is it so important to Jesus that you act like you have received grace with other people? Because how are they going to know grace if the people who have experienced it won't show it to them? And so, yes, Jesus calls to live an extraordinary life that is modeled by him so that when people come into contact with us, they come into contact with the grace of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God is making his appeal through us as if we were his ambassadors because we are. Because we have been reconciled to God. And therefore, we know what it looks like to be apart from God. And our desire more than anything else is to show people the grace of God that we have experienced. And we can't do that if we're angry all the time. Or if we're judging people all the time and telling them how they don't match up. Or if we're never praying to God. Or if we're drawing attention to ourselves. Or if we're doing all these things that Jesus tells us we need to put away. We are people of grace. Amen? Amen. 
And we live this way not to earn something from God, but because we are people of grace. And the more we become who Jesus challenges us to be, the more people will experience the grace of God in their own lives. Because we have shown it to them. Amen? Do you feel any better? I hope so. May we give everything we have to live the way that Jesus described, not to earn anything, but because the cry of our hearts is to live out the grace that God has shown us. And may the world see our grace in action. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus who has given us so much, the love and forgiveness, the mercy that we need. But he's also given us the words that we need to hear that tell us how we need to change ourselves to become more like him. And God, that is the goal, to become more like your son Jesus. To love and live and care. To not hold people's faults against them, but to introduce them to you, a God who sent his own son to die for them just like you did for us. May we be changed inside, God. May our hearts be transformed. And may the transformation of our hearts change how we treat people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in such an amazing way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.